good morning. And I'll, I'll say happy Father's Day again. So if you would, uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. And we're just going to go we'll through that whole chapter. Michelle's going to go through a portion of it, and then we'll just do two verses in chapter 6 that we've been assigned as well. <clears throat> So appreciate what Scott and Jenna uh, went through last week in chapter 4. And now we're going to continue to look into how Paul is giving instruction to his spiritual son, Timothy. As young Timothy is overseeing the church in Ephesus, after Paul had asked him to stay there when he traveled on to Macedonia. And I'm just going to do the first two verses here before I hand it over to Michelle. In verse 1, we pick it up, and it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Here in chapter 5, Paul continues to do something in this letter that we have been talking a lot about lately here at Living Hope. Paul is using this letter to continue his discipling of Timothy. Earlier in his life, Timothy had become a follower of Christ. And Timothy had the Holy Spirit to guide him and direct him and empower him just as we do. And as early as this was in the timeline of the church, believe it or not, Timothy was actually a third-generation Christian. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said to him, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. So Timothy was a third-generation Christian already. And he had not only the Holy Spirit to guide him, but he had learned of the Jewish faith and the Old Testament scriptures from both his mother and his grandmother. But he needed more. Just like we need more in our Christian walk. As we learned during our first discipleship Bible study this past Tuesday, we also need each other. Everyone has a degree of spiritual blindness. We are prone to wander off the path. And we sometimes need some course correction inputs from the spiritual community with whom we serve and with whom we worship. And I'm going to borrow from the author of our study, Paul David Tripp. And the timing of all this was interesting as it weaves into this chapter that we're studying now. For those course corrections that I just talked about, like Paul is sharing with Timothy, for those to be effective, we first need believing people in our lives that are not afraid of being lovingly honest. They have the courage to love us enough to help us break through those walls of spiritual blindness. Secondly, we need to be willing to listen. And consider when people challenge us with the things that alone we wouldn't see. We need the humility to embrace the help 
that God provides through us, through the community that we worship in. So that's what's going on here in this letter that Paul has written to Timothy. Paul is incarnating the love of Christ. Being the hands and feet of Jesus, by sharing in Timothy's struggles, identifying with his suffering, and extending God's grace as he guides him and calls him to change. Paul Paul is modeling true discipleship for us in this loving letter that has been preserved for us as the Word of God. And in verses 1 and 2 here, Paul is instructing Timothy how to do this discipling effectively. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And this word rebuke that Paul uses here is a really strong word in the Greek. It means either to strike physically or to chastise. It comes from the Greek word that is the root of the English word apoplectic, if you've ever heard of that word. That's a strong word. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word is utilized. But there are other passages in the New Testament in which we are instructed to rebuke, but it's a different word. One of which is in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, in which the Lord Jesus himself says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying i repent you must forgive him that's a totally different word there for rebuke it means a warning to prevent something from going wrong course correction and doesn't the context in which jesus uses that word sound right it's a loving context in which we are going up to that person and lovingly course correcting and sharing something that we may see that they may be spiritually blind to and it's interesting we seem to live in a time now in which the type of rebuking that paul is actually talking about in our text is much more common don't we even in or perhaps especially in christian circles The rebuking that is going on today may not be biblical, in my humble opinion. That's not what God calls us to do. Look at how Paul characterizes how we should act toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to encourage one another. He indicates that we are family, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Life is hard. And we are all going through battles that most people don't even know about, aren't we? In our world today, I think we need less rebuking and more encouraging. What if we woke up in the morning and committed ourselves with the Holy Spirit's help to be intentional about encouraging those that we come in contact with during the day? Or with people we haven't heard from in a while. Just reaching out to them with a kind word of encouragement. Let them, knowing, let them know that we are, appreciate them and that we are praying for them. Do you think that might open doors for a deeper conversation? Do you think that might make their day? 
Note that we should never refrain from coming up to a brother or sister who needs to hear some truth and love when you see them straying off the path. That's not an enjoyable thing to do. But we have to love them enough to be there for them in those times as well. Those are times of need just like there are other times of need. But it's the way we approach them in those times of need. And it's getting out of our comfort zone of just casually saying hi to the people we know each Sunday morning and then hurrying out to get lunch up at Palenque. I'm preaching to myself here. But the body of Christ was created to connect with one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the end of verse 24 to verse 26, it says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So here Paul is telling Timothy to deal with the members of the body, the body of Christ, who he was serving in a way that honors them as he would his own family in all purity. So now, as we go into the next set of verses, I'm going to turn it over to Michelle who will walk us through how Paul discipled Timothy with regards to another group of the body that also has special needs, and these were the widows. Can you... Ooh, you can hear me. Okay. This is my first experience with all this. As we spend some time this morning considering how we might honor widows in the church. Um, I'd like to make some general statements. Um, I'm going to not say um anymore this morning, too. Regarding the book of 1 Timothy, um, ah, that I might, um, that will help frame what I prepared um, this morning to talk about the specific group in the church in Ephesus within the context of the entire Bible, and even in 1 Timothy itself, the issue of how to care for widows might seem somewhat insignificant or even a minor issue compared to some of the other groups Paul is instructing Timothy about. The care of widows has been an issue throughout Scripture, beginning in Deuteronomy. Chapter 14, verses 28 to 29, it says... At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all of the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands that you do. These are specific instructions that God has given. In reading Psalm 68.4, even this morning, it says, Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him. 
His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. I just want to pause for a minute and talk about a father to the fatherless, since that's been something that just keeps coming up this morning, being Father's Day. This happens to be, in my 58 years, the first time I've celebrated Father's Day without the presence of my own father. And so I, I, I would just like to hold up my hand this morning and say how appropriate this morning has been for my own heart. And I'm assuming I'm not the only one who needed to hear these things this morning. God always amazes me. He is a good, good father. Going back to the end of the verse, <clears throat> it says he is a defender of the widows. Our God will always, in every circumstance, be a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 6, widows are neglected and overlooked in the distribution of food. Jesus' half-brother James in chapter 1, verse 27, tells us how significant the care of widows is. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. What I would like to suggest to you this morning is that Paul is instructing Pastor Timothy that the lives of all believers within the church are to be shaped by the gospel. There are specific groups within the church that Paul instructs Timothy about in this letter. Widows are just one of them. This letter <clears throat> is not meant to be a manual for us to just rip out of our Bibles and say, this is what a true widow is. This is how we honor them. There were specific issues going on in first century Ephesus that were unique to that church. But we can take away the principles from this chapter and apply them to Living Hope Church in 2023. So in the past weeks, we have discussed specific groups, qualifications and requirements of elders and deacons. Their lives are definitely to be supposed to be shaped by the gospel, a testimony of lives shaped by the gospel. Paul gives specific requirements for women in the church of Ephesus, both in their dress and in their behavior, to instruct them in lives living, <clears throat> lives that are shaped by the gospel. As Charles noted in the first few verses of this chapter, older women and men in the church are to be honored and respected for having lived out and served the Lord in their advanced years. Paul encourages Pastor Timothy himself to instruct and model for the church a life being trained up in godliness. Persist, be devoted. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, to practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that they may see your progress. As Jen and Scott said last week, be like Jesus. I believe the theme of this letter is the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. The true gospel is always going to lead to godliness in those who keep a close eye on themselves and adhere to the gospel. Remember, one of the issues the church was having was false teachers. 
in Hebrews 12:2, we are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As I have sat here each week and I have listened to all before me teach from this chapter, I've realized that each group lives are to be characterized by visible change that has been shaped by their belief and their adherence to the gospel. Widows that the church honors is just one of these groups. So let's read verses 3 through 16, and we're just going to kind of delve in to the instruction that Paul gives Timothy about this specific group. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll young widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossip and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger women, younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them, let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So I'm going to jump around a little bit here this morning. I'm not going to go through this verse by verse, as you might expect, but I am going to go instead by the verses of each type of widow that's being talked about here this morning in this chapter. So the first of these, honor widows who are truly widows, who are truly widows. Those who were really widows were to receive honor, and honor in this context is financial support given in a very dignified and honorable way. Widows did not have our, our systems of pensions, social security, retirement homes to fall back on in those days in Ephesus. So verse 5 tells us the character of a true widow. She is truly a widow, left alone, has her hope on God, and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. She's living, a true widow is living in a place where all she has is the Lord. 
and she's committed to him and serving him. She prays day and night, believing that God will take care of her. Anna is an example to us of a godly widow in Scripture. We find her story in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. We go ahead and continue on looking at this qualifications of a widow that the church would support. Those are in verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. I would like to point out this morning that the list here that they're talking about in the church of Ephesus was something specific to the issue of pastoral care for widows in that church. I thought about it, and I'm like, LHC, Living Hope Church, is not taking this literally, and we're not making a list of who true widows are, right? That's, the list is not the application for today. Thank goodness. Um, she should be a, at least 60 years of age is one of the qualifications. That doesn't mean today that if a woman who's 42 years old and loses her husband in a tragic accident as a church body, we're not going to say to her, come back, we'll help you when you're 60 years old, right? That's, that's not what we're saying here. Um, that is a specific problem, again, in the church of Ephesus. Um, and these are just principles that we're talking about this morning. She is the wife of one husband. She's lived a life that reflects God's standard of marriage. She is known for her good works, which means her godly character is evident. She's brought up children. And according to this passage, this means that she would no longer have living children or she wouldn't qualify to be cared for by the church in this way. Um, that would be a disqualifying requirement for her. And according to verse 4, um, that's where we see that. And in that time in the church of Ephesus in first century, what is also a possibility is that this woman, this widow, would rescue abandoned children and raise them as her own to know the Lord. And so those are the two possibilities with bringing up children because that was a reality of that day. She is hospitable. She has washed the saints' feet. This means she was a humble servant to all who entered her house. I was thinking about this. And I'm thinking, this is a big deal. It's a big deal to wash someone's feet. Like I picture that. We all got together on Friday night and I was thinking about this. You guys, I love you, but I'm not washing your feet, right? <laughs> but the part that I think that we really should focus on is the humility with which this widow 
was hospitable. She was a humble servant to all those who entered her home. I think that's more applicable for us today. Um, Jesus, in Luke 7, 44 through 48, was speaking to Simon. And he said, And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This type of widow also tells us in, in this passage that she helped the afflicted and she devoted herself to every good work. And I want to say to you this morning, her devotion is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We find that in Mark 12, 30 and 31. So as we go back and revisit the reason why a widow, widow would not make the list, we see that in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So part of honoring our fathers and our mothers is responsibility for caring for them in their old age. It's not the responsibility of the church to care for widows when their families can. I realize that, you know, in, in real life, this may not be possible for some families. But right here, in Scripture, our ultimate source of authority, it says taking care and honoring our parents is part of our, our practice of godliness to care for those in our own families. It also says, in verse 4, we are to repay our parents in this way, for this pleases God. And I've given some thought to that this week. And I really know we are for time today, but we just have to pause here for a minute. Because I was thinking back to raising our own boys. <clears throat> Getting married halfway through college, dirt poor, got nothing. We graduate from college, we work, we start saving money, our, our lifestyle changes a little bit, and we get the bright idea, let's have a family. Well, I think that was my idea. So we have kids, right? And so the rest of your life, you are raising them, feeding them, clothing them, paying for their activities, educating them, and by the time they leave home, you got no money again. None. Zero. And so what do you do for the rest of your life? You are saving for old age, right? You're, you're just thinking about these things. These become your focus again. And lo and behold, what do you do with the rest of the money that you do for the rest of your life? It goes back to your kids. So I'm thinking repayment should happen while we're still alive, right? I'm thinking... Next time I see my kids, you're paying for Chick-fil-A. That's just going to happen, right? 
So there's something to be said for that. I think if we really think about it, I think it pleases God, right? It is what it is. Anyway, it is a commandment. Exodus 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. <laughs> and Paul, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, he says, Not only honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, right? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Our relationship with our parents changes. As we enter adulthood, we go off and live our own lives. But in God's economy, we are always to honor our parents. That never goes away. We <clears throat> don't owe our parents the same kind of obedience that we did when we lived in their home. But we will always owe them the honor, our inward reverence for them and our outward actions for them are our practice of godliness in this lifetime. That's what God says we are to do. It is more of our duty toward God than a duty towards our parents. If we look at verse 8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. Those are pretty strong words for the church of Ephesus. Unbelievers were caring for their families they're not aware of God's instructions and commandments, and yet they honored their families in a way that was putting God's people to shame. Our belief and our behavior, they're inseparable. Our actions will always flow from what we believe if our actions are not reflecting what God says, then perhaps we need to take a long look at what we truly believe. John Piper wrote a book on this very subject about our belief, what we really believe, and our behavior. The name of the book is Battling Unbelief. And in it, he says, unbelief in God's promises leads to Christ dishonoring sin. So we are to honor our father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with us and that we may live long in the land. So the second type of widow that Paul addresses here is in verse 6, the self-indulgent woman. She is dead even while she lives. So self-indulgent, living for temporal pleasure. She's dead to the eternal, lasting ways of God. She's not laboring and striving for the promises of the things to come. She's not training in godliness in which chapter 4, verse 8 from last week says, is beneficial in every way. She's an example of someone the church would say, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Your life is not characterized by godliness. There are consequences to temporal living. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 tells us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So lastly, that third type of widow that Paul instructs Timothy about are in our verses 11 through 16. 
Paul's instructing Timothy here to refuse to put young widows on a list. Younger widows watching older widows. They're looking in their newfound aloneness or looking at the older women, older widows in the church, and they're thinking, yeah, I'm going to be like them. I'm going to live my life 24-7 committed to serving the Lord and loving him. And as she progresses through her stages of grief and loss, one day <clears throat> she finds herself looking across the room. She sees some fella, and she says, I don't know, I might need to know his name. And what happens is, before she knows it, she finds herself wanting and finding companionship in marriage. It's become her priority. And the thing that she said she was going to be solely committed to, she finds she's not. I believe that Paul is not bringing judgment on young widows. I think what he's saying and emphasizing here in this passage is the need for purity to be the mark of the relationships of believers. These young widows still had passions to be fruitful and multiply, and these passions drew them away from Christ. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 tells us. The freedom that we have in Christ only exists under his headship. Purity matters. We serve a holy God. We can't believe what we want to believe. We can't behave how we want to behave. We've been bought with the price of Christ's blood. Our freedom is to say no to the power of sin by the power of Christ. No matter what season of life we live in, we cannot redefine the parameters of morality or purity. That freedom is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are no longer our own. <clears throat> so these widows, not only <clears throat> were they drawing away from Jesus, they were idle. Rather than pursuing a new life of their own or caring for others, they were involving themselves in having opinions about other people's lives. They were sharing it. They were becoming gossips. They were becoming busybodies. The danger here in idleness is that it becomes sin. It says some had already turned away to follow Satan. So Paul encourages these young widows to remarry, to have families, lead a productive life, and not give Satan the opportunity to derail their lives, either by living a life of self-indulgence or a life that's marked by idleness and gossip. Paul tells Timothy to command them, instruct them, charge the widows to be above reproach. In chapter 4 last week, Jen and Scott, when they taught on this, <clears throat> um, they emphasized that Paul's command was very clear to Pastor Timothy that he is to teach and model to the widows to be above reproach. 
practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That was chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. That's discipleship. And as Charles mentioned earlier, as we've started this summer Bible study on discipleship, one of the things that stuck with me from last week is that we touched on that God uses his word and God uses people, both in our lives to be instruments of change in that training in godliness. As each of us is devoted to living a life that is of faith and purity, using the gifts he's given us, practicing, immersing ourselves in the word of God, we influence one another in the progress of our godliness. So I think I'd like to go back to what I said in the beginning about the theme of this letter. We're talking about widows in this section, but I believe this letter's theme is that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of all those who believe it, the true gospel will always lead to godliness and those that keep a close eye on themselves and adhere to the gospel. A widow didn't wake up one day and automatically meet the qualifications of a devoted, godly woman dedicated to service. Her life was hidden with Christ. She pursued godliness in every season. She was influenced by those around her, and she influenced them to become more and more like Christ. This was the widow the church of Ephesus wanted to support and care for. And just as a means of illustration, kind of bring this alive for us to take something that was written in first century Ephesus, I'd like to tell you as briefly as I can a story about a recent widow that I know. Her name is Karen. Karen, yes, somebody with the name Karen is born and raised in Alabama. She's 77. She was married for 54 years. She's the mother of two sons, and she has five grandchildren, the oldest of them going in to be a senior in high school. She has this running text with her grandchildren. Every single morning, she sends a scripture to them before school. And each grandson and Karen interact with that scripture all day long and how it has influenced their day. She's done this since they've been old enough to have cell phones, which happens pretty early these days. I met her in 2012 in those years that we lived in Savannah. Um, just to tell you a little bit about her service outside of her church beyond that, um, I met her at the Savannah Care Center, <clears throat> which is where we would, uh, our jobs were to meet whoever came in off the streets these young girls who would come in looking for resources or just someone to hear their story, um, doing pregnancy tests just to make sure that they were indeed pregnant early for the first time or for many times. Um, mostly what we did was share the love of Jesus. We would encourage them in every way we could not to go across the street to the abortion clinic. So I served with her for many years doing that. And while we were there, another lady that we were training came in and said, there's this older group of women living in Section 8 housing. 
they're shut-ins, and they are just desperately looking for someone to come sing with them every week and do a Bible study with them because they just can't get out and go to church anymore. And so Karen looked at me, and she said, we got to go. And I said, okay, we're going to go. So we met these ladies, and for years, Karen played the piano and sang, and we went through every book of the Bible that they wanted to study. It's a little bit about her service. So fast forward five, well, six years ago now, her husband became so ill with cancer that she could no longer go and serve the Lord in the way in which she wanted. And so that was a very difficult time in which she struggled because she didn't know what to do. She's like, I want to, I love Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I've always done this and I just can't sit here and do anything. And so one day on the phone, she said to me, I have a plan. My plan is I'm going to take my church directory, which is more than 800 people. And every week I'm going to pray for them. And as I'm aware of the needs, whether someone is sick or lost their husband or whatever the need may be, I'm going to write them a note. And as God leads me, even if I don't know these people, I'm, I'm just going to send them a note. So five years she did this. Her husband passed away a year ago, May. And her kids said, you got to go to assisted living. She said, no, I can't leave this house. I'm not ready for that. So three months later, she shattered her knee, destroyed it. She was in the hospital. And again, her kids said, you got to go to assisted living. And she said, no, I just can't. And so as we talked through a lot of this, I said, look, I will come. I will, co- I will pick you up from the hospital, and I will take you home that first week. You need plan B, but plan A will be Michelle will be your caregiver for a week. And we're going to see if you really can stay at home or not. Well, while I was there, someone from her church came in a lovely woman who made a schedule 24-7 for four months. Her church came in and met every single one of her needs. And the part that gets me is those cards, those insignificant cards, that gift that she had that you don't think is really a big deal. She had some young women come through her door who said, you wrote me a note in the worst season of my life and you didn't know me least I can do is come here and help you in your worst nightmare of being a widow and not being able to care for yourself. And it was really overwhelming to watch that and hear that. Um, the more stories she told me, hair on my hands would, on my arms would just stand, stand straight up because God took someone who lived a life of obedience, who put him first. And he took those tiny little things that we don't think are important, and he used them in a church, a very large church. And he's like started this crazy revival there. People are just coming out of their comfort zones, and people are loving one another and meeting each other's needs in a way in which they never have because she sat there for five years and said, I don't know what to do to serve Jesus, and look what God did. So I just want to repeat to you what I said to you earlier. A widow does not wake up one day automatically meeting the qualifications of a devoted, godly woman dedicated to service. Her life is hidden in Christ. She has pursued godliness in every season, influencing those around her to become more and more like Christ. This is an example for all of us to follow.
Well, that was great. In the interest of time, I'm going to kind of call, call an audible here as I hear stomachs rumbling. Um, so I just, I just want to skip through and, and, and wrap up. Uh, I think Michelle did an outstanding job talking about the widows. And, and Paul goes on in this chapter and talks about elders and if there's someone who wants to admit a charge against them, how there should be two or three witnesses. And he goes on to talk about Timothy taking a little wine for his stomach because Timothy had an ailment. And as we go into chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, uh, he even talks about bond servants or slaves, that they find themselves in that situation, that they should honor those who are overseeing them in a way that, just as we've been talking about, would reflect Jesus Christ, and in a, in a way that disciples those who are overseeing them. And so all of this chapter, going on into the verse two verses of chapter six, is just a wonderful, lovely model for us, laid out as Paul was sharing with his child in the faith, Timothy, of discipleship. And so I would encourage us all to think about this week, uh, what does that mean to me? You know, I talked a little bit about that in the beginning, uh, about encouragement and a word of encouragement. And Michelle shared about Karen, how she used the time that she had when she was laid up and hurt to write notes to each of the members of their church, uh, especially those that were going through a season of pain or discouragement. And man, the fruit that that had. Uh, perhaps not everybody was able to repay her personally, but the, the fruit that was stored up for her eternally and the fruit for the kingdom, I don't even know if we can measure it. And so I, I think this chapter is, is, is powerful in, in it lays out a roadmap for us in the way that we interact with each other. Uh, as, a, as a loving body of believers, as the body of Christ. And so now, let's just pray together uh, as we move in towards the end of the service. And, and I, I would just ask you that you would take this seriously uh, this week and, and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in how you can apply it to your lives. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to thank you for capturing this letter and even this chapter in which your servant Paul uh, wrote through the influence of your Holy Spirit to his spiritual son Timothy and for the amazing seeds of wisdom that are captured here. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that we would be open, that our hearts would be softened and that our consciences, consciences would be able to sense your leading in how you would have us change the way that we live out our lives going forward, starting with today. And Lord, my prayer would be that as 
we interact with each other, as we see someone across the way that perhaps is new, that we would come out of our comfort zone and be intentional about going over there and just sharing the love of Jesus. And as we go out into the world after church today and in the work week ahead, that you would encourage us to do the same with the people that we encounter on a daily basis, whether it's someone at the grocery store, the cashier, and you look at them and it looks like they're having a rough day, that you just give us the words of encouragement and that you would use those to sow seeds of the gospel. Lord, that we would begin to engage with our community, Lord, and that you would bring many into your kingdom. So Lord, we just give you honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.